Well, it is good to be here. This morning, uh, we are going to actually be going backwards a little bit uh, in terms of our sermon series. We, we are continuing picking up a sermon series we began all the way back in, in January. Actually, the beginning of January is where we started this, this little sermon series, and we've kind of been picking it up here and there as we go. It's kind of been filling in uh, a couple of the gaps and whatnot, but we're going to kind of sit in this series for a little bit, and it's simply called Family Dynamics. And throughout this series, what we have been looking at is how do we in the church actually relate to one another, right? The, the primary way in which uh, the Bible refers to the church is family. Right? We're adopted into one family together, the family of God. And so the, the question is always, well, how do we actually get along? Right? Just like a real family, that is sometimes easier said than done. And so we're spending a little bit of time and saying, well, okay, how do we deal with these things? And, and today we're looking at one particular aspect, and that is, how do we deal with those who doubt? How do we deal with those who, who doubt, not, not simply from outside the church, right? In one sense, we kind of expect, right, someone, someone who's not a Christian, of course they're going to doubt some of the claims that we make in the church, right? Last week, we celebrated Easter, and I mean, here's one of the hardest things for anyone to accept. Jesus died, and then he rose again. Like, like really, actually, literally, physically, he got up out of the grave. He was dead, and then he was alive again, right? That, that's a hard thing to accept. In fact, we even looked last week. The disciples had a pretty hard time accepting that one at first, too. We expect people outside of the church to doubt, but, but sometimes it becomes far more shocking when it comes from inside the church, right? Especially when it comes from, well, people who are supposed to be leaders in the church, it seems like over the past number of years, we've seen uh, quite a number of, of, of famous sort of pastors and leaders within the church suddenly just fall away, decide that they're not going to, to, to follow this anymore, and they don't actually even believe it anymore. And, it, and it's something that, that often kind of makes us kind of shake a little bit and go, wait, wait, I, I thought they were supposed to know, right? One somewhat famous example is, well, Joshua Harris. Right? If you were in the church, if you were a young adult about 15, 20 years ago, you probably know that name quite well because he wrote a very famous book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Right? It became huge, hugely known in sort of the North American church, and lots of people entered into relationships, entered into marriage because of what they wrote or read in that book. In fact, just a couple of years ago, Joshua Harris actually said he left the church. He said he didn't believe anything that he had written in that book. He apologized for writing it and then subsequently also divorced his wife. In his own words, he said, um, by all measures that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. He goes on to say he essentially has excommunicated himself from the church. He no longer is following any of it. Right? And maybe some of you are even thinking, well, well, we read that book before we got married, and, and what does that actually even mean? Right? What, what do you do when, when church leaders who are supposed to know what they're doing are, are suddenly falling away? It, it instills a lot of doubt, doesn't it? Right? Another, another sort of famous example of this is a man named Marty Sampson. He was uh, the Hillsong's worship pastor. Right? He wrote tons and tons of, of worship music, some of it you've probably even heard. And he goes through this sort of what he calls a deconstruction moment on, on Instagram, of course. He writes, he says, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? 
Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. And with that, he left the church. Entered into, I believe, the entertainment industry. But it leaves a lot of us in the church going, wait, hold on. They were the ones who were supposed to know all this stuff, and they're having doubts. What hope is there for the, for the rabble of us non-famous Christians? Are we, do we have any hope of actually getting through this? Is there anything to, to hold on to? If they can't do it, is, is it even real? Right? There's a lot of, a lot of things to, to probably unpack here, but it leaves us with wondering, well, how do we respond to those who doubt? How do we respond when, when, when people have genuine doubts, concerns, questions about the faith? How do we, how do we respond to that within the church? Right? How do we understand doubt? And, and what does the Bible even say about it? And how should we respond? And so that's really what I want us to, to look at here this morning as, as we walk through our text. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open uh, to Jude chapter 1. Jude only has one chapter, but you can go there. It's the last book in the Bible uh, before the book of Revelation. We're just going to look at just simply two verses. Two verses from the book of Jude on, on really how should we approach this topic of doubt. All right? So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Jude, verse 22, says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You may be seated. Amen. It's a short one today. I'm going to argue that really the primary way that the Bible talks about Doubt and, and how we are called to respond to it is exactly what we just read. Show mercy. Right? Jude he was writing to this, to this audience who is having to contend for the faith. There's a lot of, of different ideas and even false teachers who have gone into the church, and Jude is writing to them and saying, all right, you, you need to, to actually hold firm to your faith. He, he encourages the church. He says, keep yourself praying. Keep yourself relying on the Holy Spirit. Keep waiting for the day when Jesus Christ returns. But he recognizes that in all of that, doubts are going to come up in our minds. And so what do we do? Well, Jude says, have mercy. Have mercy on those who wrestle with doubt. And so this is what we're going we're gonna to unpack a little bit here this morning. Where do these doubts actually come from? How does the Bible talk about them? And then finally, how do we respond to them? So we're going to come back to this passage in Jude in, in a little bit. But this morning, what I want to do is actually start by, I'm, I'm going to say, deconstructing doubt, right? Deconstruction is very much sort of the, the, the buzzword of the day, right? Everyone's talking about, well, we need to deconstruct, we need to deconstruct, we need to, you know, figure out all the pieces. And in one sense, deconstruction isn't a bad thing, right? It's a fairly neutral word. It simply means to take something apart, Right? Just like if you're a mechanic and there's a problem going on with the engine, you're going to deconstruct the engine, look at all the parts, clean them, figure out which ones need to be replaced, and then put it all back together. Right? And in one sense, that's exactly what we should be doing with our faith. 
right? We should be deconstructing. We should know why we believe what we believe. It shouldn't just be a mystery like, well, like an actual engine is to me. I don't know how it works. It just works, all right? Actually, our faith should be a little bit more known than that. We should be able to take it apart a little bit and say, yeah, I I understand why I believe this. But the problem is that's not how most people use the word deconstruction. A lot of the time when people are using the word deconstruction, what they mean is, I want to take it apart and leave it that way. And then walk away and say it doesn't work. A lot of times when people are talking about deconstruction, what they're doing is, well, I don't, I don't believe this anymore. And I'm simply being done with that. And so the question is, well, where is all that coming from? Where, where do these doubts actually come from? I want to give a couple of just overarching categories. This is obviously not every possible situation or scenario, but, but I hope at least a couple of categories for us to, to have in our minds as we think about doubt. And the first one is probably the most obvious. It's when we get challenged in our faith. Do you really believe Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, that, that doesn't really happen. Why would you believe that? Right? You, get, you get challenged on all kinds of, of different questions in our faith. If God is really loving, why is there hell? How come evil exists? Doesn't the Bible have a whole bunch of contradictions in it? I mean, why, how could you believe that? How could you actually believe that's God's word if there are all these errors and problems? Right? I, th- I think probably this is where most of us immediately think of when it comes to doubts. Yeah, there's a question I don't know how to answer, and it causes me to, to, to kind of second guess and say, well, I, I don't know how to answer these questions. Maybe there aren't answers for them. But I'm going to argue that actually that's, that's sort of the outward thing. There's often a lot of underlying issues as well. Oftentimes, in fact, we, we kind of already have noticed one even as we started. It's a lot of times people start doubting because they're hurt by the church. They watch a leader fall, and they, and they think to themselves, well, well, if he can't do it, how, how can I? Right? Leaders failing morally, they're, they're, they're either walking away from their faith or they're just becoming more and more corrupt, and you think, well, how did that possibly happen? Or you spend time in the church, and you realize, hey, not everyone there is perfect. And, and it starts to get hard. And you start thinking to yourself, I mean, if, if, if no one is really living this up, is, is it real? And you start going into doubts on that end, right? It's a sense of loss from inside the church, but it also can be a desire from, from actually things that are outside, right? Actually, one, one major cause of, of doubt is simply the desire to live outside of what the Bible constrains us to, right? The, the classic example is sort of the, the university student who gets, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, and thinks, you know, it'd be really nice if I didn't have to worry about all this purity stuff, and I could just do whatever I want, and so you start wanting that a little bit more and thinking, well, well, is the Bible actually good? Is it actually calling me to something that I can do? I mean, it seems like Christians are oftentimes just, just trying to be buzzkills. They're just trying to make sure no one has any fun. I mean, this all looks like it's far better. And this desire begins to grow more and more until it begins to, to look for ways in which we can rationalize it. All right, a great example of this is, if you know the story of Henry VIII, Henry VIII is, uh, was the king of England a long time ago. He's credited with starting the Anglican Church, right? He moved the church out of Catholicism and into Anglicanism, into the Protestant Reformation. But, but most historians are going to agree that actually he didn't do that because he was just convicted of, of the theological truths of the Reformation. That, that wasn't his desire at all. 
he wanted to get divorced, and the Pope said no. And so he just got rid of the Pope entirely. And in fact, hey, guess what? I don't have to pay taxes to the Pope either. Those are great. And so he wonderfully started his own church. Now hear me, that's not a criticism on all of Anglicanism. (laughs) But certainly his desire was not because he was convinced of a theological truth. He was simply looking for a way to deconstruct his faith so he could do whatever he wanted. It was an intellectual reason for why he didn't have to follow the rules. And I think that same temptation still exists today. But I think also finally with that, we, we could talk about the desire that comes to escape from peer pressure. Right? It's, it's hard to, to say you are a committed Christian when, you're, when your friends at school or your coworkers or even family looks at you and says, How, I can't believe any of that. That's ridiculous. Why would you believe that? And it becomes challenging more and more. You start to doubt because, you know what, they seem like really nice people. Maybe there's something to it, right? Do do I really want to be the weird one, the odd one out and actually stand for for what the Bible is saying? I mean, are, are we sure it's all correct? I mean, they seem to be doing pretty well on their own, right? There's all kinds of reasons why someone might actually come into, start doubting, But oftentimes, there's usually underlying reasons. And the reason I want to start there is because if you don't understand that, we so often respond poorly. We so often respond poorly because we can either just criticize and say you shouldn't have any doubts, or you simply say, all right, well, well, here's a a pad answer. Here's a a one-liner that'll quickly kind of move you past and never actually address the reason why someone is actually wrestling through these challenging topics, right? Take, for instance, what the, the Hillsong's worship pastor stated. Right? He, he, he lists all these things that uh, he's saying have no answers in the church, right? Miracles, leaders failing, uh, contradictions in the Bible, and so on. Now, look, I'm not going to try and psychoanalyze him or anything like that, but I'll say, actually, we have answers to all of those. In fact, the church has spent near 2,000 years answering all of those questions over and over again. I'm going to argue there's probably something else behind it. Again, I don't know him, so don't, don't hear me commenting on him specifically, but so often the, the outward doubt is masking something inward that actually needs to be dealt with. There's lots of reasons someone's have to doubt but, and, uh, and might want to deconstruct their faith. And, and here's the interesting thing. The Bible realizes that. See, the Bible actually recognizes that people doubt in different ways because the Bible talks about doubt in different ways. Right? Doubt in the Bible is, is used, and I think it actually clarifies us to what we see go on around us, and maybe even within our own hearts. All right? I'll start here at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, Paul is writing, he says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? Now, Paul here is talking about a debate over what meat that Christians are allowed to eat right? They're, they're debating back and forth. But his conclusion is, whoever doubts, uh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so here, doubt is really the opposite of faith. And so, I mean, if I can connect two dots that are pretty close together, he's saying doubt here is sin. 
That to doubt is to disbelieve what God has actually done and said. And so doubt here, he's really equating with, with sin, rejecting and saying, well, I, I don't believe God can, can do that. I don't believe he is real. And so I'm going to act however I want to. Right? There, there is a doubt that is, in one sense, very much a rejection of God. I don't want to have anything to do with God. And so I, I don't believe he exists. I'm going to argue that's probably the, the common assumption of how we begin talking about doubt. But here's the thing, that's not the only way the Bible talks about it. Right? Listen to how James talks in James chapter 1. He's speaking of prayer. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here, the doubt that James is talking about is not sort of this sort of active rejection of God, but it's just complete uncertainty, tossed back and forth. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to think. I can't expect God's going to do anything because I have no idea what is happening one way or another. James says he's double-minded. He's got got two minds. At one point, I think this way, and at one point, I think this way, and I don't know which is correct. James recognizes, actually, this is a different kind of doubt. This is a person who is confused. It's not the same as being hostile. It's wrestling and lost and not knowing what to believe. It's a doubt because you don't have a foundation underneath of you. And so we have already just two different examples. And I mean, we should understand that when someone says, I have doubts, we can mean vastly different things. In fact, the Bible has a third way of talking about doubt. There's doubt that's opposed to God, doubt that's wrestling with uncertainty, but there's also doubt that is searching for God. Probably the most famous person in the Bible to have doubts is, well, we've unfortunately named him Doubting Thomas, all right? He doesn't end doubting, just to be clear, all right? But Doubting Thomas, right, when when Jesus is raised, all the disciples see him, Thomas isn't there, and he says, I can't believe it. And so finally, in the Gospel of John, Jesus shows up. Then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Thomas here is not trying to run away from God. Actually, far from it. As soon as that rock is out of his shoe, as it were, he believes immediately. My Lord and my God, he responds to Jesus on the spot. Yes, Thomas is looking for a way to actually believe. There's a block there, but he wants to trust in Jesus Christ. In a very similar way, we we can hear uh, the story of a father who meets Jesus during his ministry. He wants Jesus to heal his son. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, can you please heal him? If you can do something, please do it. And so Mark chapter 9, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Again, this isn't doubt that's trying to get away from Jesus. This is a doubt that is genuinely trying and seeking after Jesus. By the way, Jesus heals his son on the spot. Jesus doesn't reject that. He doesn't say, hey, unless you have perfect faith, you can't possibly come to me. No, no, Jesus actually embraces him and says, all right, let me help you with your unbelief. 
And see, the Bible actually talks a lot about these different kinds of doubt. The doubt that's very much opposed to God, the doubt that's just unstable and don't know what to think, and a doubt that's saying, I really want to know God more and more. And again, the reason I want us to understand this, even from a biblical perspective, because it changes how we respond to people. Right? You've got someone who, who maybe they're, they're wrestling with some of the past hurts in, in, their, in their church life, and they're trying to figure out, and they've got these doubts, and you respond with a long lecture. And they're thinking, I, like, that's not what I want at all. Versus the person who, who's genuinely just confused and saying, I, I just, I don't know what the answers are. I don't know how to even begin this process. And you say, you know what? You just put your arm around. It's all right to cry. And they're going, that, that's wonderful, but I need some answers. Like, please help me. I don't know what to do here, right? Or it's someone who's genuinely having an honest question and, and you chastise them for their doubt and say, no, no, you, you got to just believe. It only serves to push them away from the church. So, so what does a proper response actually look like? What does the Bible call us to do? All right, go back to Jude, where we started. Jude chapter 1, verse 22. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jude tells us where to begin. In one sense, it doesn't matter which one of these places someone's coming from. The response of the church is always mercy. Show mercy to the one who is wrestling with doubts. Right? What does that mean practically? Listen. Listen to, to, to what they have to say. Listen to, to, to the questions that they have. What have they been going through? What have they been wrestling with? Don't, don't discount it. Don't push it off. Don't say, hey, that's, that's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. No, listen honestly and then be patient. All right, this is, I'll be honest, this is the part I wrestle with, I fight with because my knee-jerk reaction is to just give an answer, right? You've got a question, boom, I have an answer. All right, move on, continue, Right? That doesn't help anyone, right? That's just slapping someone with knowledge and saying, hey, you should have figured this out earlier. It's not a helpful response, and it's not really what the Bible's calling us to do. Actually, the Bible's calling us, have mercy on those who doubt. Those who have questions, actually hear them out and help them understand and work through it. Why? Because this is exactly what God has done for us. This is exactly how God has responded to us. Hear me, no one starts off believing. doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home or not, nobody starts off believing. Everyone starts with disbelief. Everyone starts with doubt. And yet, God still sent Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again to new life, all while we still doubted him. God showed us mercy while we doubted. And so the call of the church is respond the way Jesus has responded to us. He has shown us mercy and grace. All right, listen to how Jesus talks. Gospel of Matthew. Jesus responds to those who are, who are straying and wandering away. He tells them a parable. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Right? Jesus goes out of his way to go and find the one who is struggling and lost. How are we called to respond to those who have doubts in the church? It's not to say, wow, 
that, that, that's a tough doubt. Man, you should, you should go and, and, and go deal with that over there. No, it's actually to go and say, all right, let me help you. Let me go out of my way to help you understand what the Word of God says and what God has done more and more. Let's work on this together. Because that's what God did for me when I was straying. When I was far off, God came and found me. So let me try and show just a little bit of how God has been merciful to me. Let me show that to those who doubt. Right? Jude says our our default position is mercy and grace. Let us be patient with those who doubt and show overwhelming mercy. But if you've ever studied the book of Jude, you'll know Jude doesn't say things once. Jude actually likes to say things over and over again. In fact, he has all throughout this book, if you study it, he has triples, threes, every single time. Every example he gives, he gives three of them. And the reason is, is because he can actually deal with the topic then from from three different angles. And he does the exact same thing here. And actually, it's very helpful for us as we deal with this topic. So verse 22, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, he says... Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Right? As he sort of repeats this theme, he is, he is uh, uh, qualifying this command to us. He says, show mercy by snatching some out of the fire and others show mercy with fear. What does that actually mean? What are we supposed to do here? I think what Jude is doing is he's setting some guardrails for us to follow, right? So you can imagine it'd be very easy for someone to, to read sort of verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, and say, all right, that's, that's the command. We're just going to be merciful. So if you have doubts, don't worry about it, all right? Come on in. You, you, can, you can have doubts about Jesus. Everyone's got doubts. Don't worry about it. We all are, are trying to just figure this out, and it's all just kind of a nebulous thing. Hey, it doesn't matter what you believe. And Jude kind of rails that in and says, well, hold on just a minute. Hold on, because actually the call here is to to show mercy by snatching others out of the fire. See, I think the the fire here he's talking about is really this this fire of what he talks about, final judgment. Actually, the call is show mercy to those who doubt in such a way that that brings them out of that final judgment. See, here's the challenge for us is that we believe actually, well, what you believe matters. But at the end of the day, it is trust in Jesus Christ alone that saves us. And so actually, what we believe at the end of the day does make a difference. And so Jude is already kind of setting up guardrails for us on both ends. On one side, he says, our default response is to show mercy To actually say, yes, let's dive and delve into these things, not to shut down the conversation. No, we are called to share, to show mercy. But then also to rein it in from the other side and say, well, well, let's not just follow off into some nebulous of, of unknown philosophical wonderings and actually say, no, actually, we care about what you believe. Why? Because it matters at the end of the day. Actually, Jude is is giving us a way in which we can say, yes, we are absolutely want to work on these things with you because we believe it matters. Because we don't want you just wandering off into unknown uncertainty for the rest of your life. That's not good for you, nor is it what the Bible calls us to. John, when he is writing uh, his letter uh, in 1 John, this is what he says. 
He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, look, the whole reason I'm even writing to you is so that you can actually have confidence in what you believe, that you can have assurance of your salvation. That's the end goal. We, we got to deal with these doubts, these, these questions that we have, but the reason we do so is so that eventually we end in a place of confidence and assurance. The goal of the Bible is not to say, hey, you need to wrestle with doubts for the rest of your life and there won't be answers anywhere. Actually, that's, that's not the case. We genuinely believe there, there are answers to these doubts. That's why we want to wrestle with them, right? Doubt festers in the darkness, so let's actually bring it out into the light, talk about it, and say, hey, are there answers? See, sometimes we, we defeat ourselves before we even begin, <laughs> right? We, we say, you know, I, I just, I can't imagine what the answer is to this problem, so I'm pretty sure there isn't one. Instead of realizing, actually, well, there's people who, have, who are much smarter than I am, who have dealt with this for much longer than I've even probably been alive, and actually, they might know something I don't. And so we actually bring it up and say, hey, let's, let's deal with it because there are answers to these things, right? Now, now I want to give just a couple sort of snippets of, of where answers come from, even from the questions we've already talked about, lest I just bring up, you know, doubts and then leave them out there. Does the Bible have contradictions? My answer is, well, no. That doesn't mean that there are no challenging passages in the Bible. There absolutely are challenging passages. There are difficult things for us to, to put together, but also... That's exactly what we expect. The Bible has about 40 different authors over about 1,500 years, and they write from different perspectives with different ideas. And actually, as soon as you start realizing how the person is writing in context, actually, I'm going to say 95 of all those challenges all melt away. Do Paul and James disagree? Not if you read the rest of the book, right? Actually, it's not hard to, to reconcile most things, and even those that are challenging have answers as well. How is it that we could understand a God of love that would actually send people to hell? I mean, sh should we be comfortable with that kind of an idea? Actually, the answer to that second one is no. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. That, that's never the point. But as we begin to understand who God is, we understand his holiness, his perfection, his love for what is good and, and a desire for justice. We start to understand more and more of what it looks like as we see the, the, the horrendous reality of our sin before God. Actually, we can start to understand that. And in fact, we're not called to be comfortable, but we're actually called to be uncomfortable. So we go and share the gospel more and more. How do we respond when the church leaders fail? We remember, first of all, guess what? Our faith is never meant to be placed in people, but in Jesus. Church leaders are, are sinful human beings just like the rest of us. And so we should never base our faith on what any church leader has done or is doing, but rather base it entirely on what Jesus has done for us. See, the Bible is not calling us to simply stay in a state of, of doubt and confusion for the rest of our lives, but actually say, let's talk about these things so that we can understand them more and actually come to a place of uh, assurance and confidence in what God has done. So Jude is setting up for us guardrails as we understand this discussion, and he has one final one for us. He says, show mercy with fear. 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Again, I think this is one more sort of guardrail for us as we begin to embark on these topics, and it's a bit of a, a, bit of a weird turn of phrase that he's using here. So, so let me try and use a slightly different one, but I think it's getting to the same point. Jude is saying, as you dive into these things, change the diaper and don't get your hands dirty. <laughs> okay? I think that's what he's getting at here. He's saying, actually, hate, hate even the garments. To, you don't even want to touch You don't want to touch that sin. You don't want to begin to fall into that same pattern or even those same doubts that they are, right? It's a little bit like going to your, to a therapist and saying, you know what, I, I, I got this huge fear of flying. I really need you to help me with it. And they say, okay, talk to me about it. And you start explaining how, how terrified you are getting onto a plane. And the end of the session, they go, yeah, you're right. I'm terrified now too. No, like that's not what we're called to do at all, right? Jude is basically saying, don't get yourself so far into it that you begin to fall yourself, right? What do we do if that's the case? We say, hey, there's a whole church around us. Let's bring some more people in so that we're not all stumbling together, but actually be able to hold one another accountable because the end goal is not doubt, but assurance, The end goal is confidence in what Jesus has done. We do not need to go through all of life worried about the fact that what we believe is might be true or not. So how should the church respond to those who doubt? With incredible, outgoing mercy and grace that ultimately leads to greater confidence in what God has done and what he has spoken to us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That is really the goal of how do we respond to doubt that we all might have this full assurance of our hope until the end. We respond to those who are doubting with mercy leading to confidence. Right? There, there are lots of reasons why people have doubts when it comes to the Christian faith. There are good reasons and there are bad. But the response of the church is always, let us be filled with mercy. This is a place where you can actually ask those questions because we believe there are genuine answers to them. We, we want to know Jesus more and more. And so that means we got to ask some difficult questions sometimes, not so that we can, you know, get rid of our faith or, or destroy it altogether, but actually so that we might be built up more in it. Right? Let, us, let us rely on what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, but let us be willing, vulnerable enough, and open to be able to ask those questions, and then may we be a place so filled with the mercy and the grace of God that he has shown to us that we would respond the same way. That when someone cries out, I believe, help my unbelief, the church would answer the same way Jesus did. Yeah, let's work on this together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for the way in which you have transformed our lives, that you have transformed our hearts. Lord, none of us start off with, with perfection in our knowledge or, or even in our trust of you. But Father, I pray as we work together, as we deal with these challenging topics and times uh, through, our, through the word of God, Father, I pray, would you be at work in our hearts? Would you develop a, a trust that has been won through, through many difficult conversations that we can come to the Bible, that we can trust in who you are and what you have done even more?
Father, I pray, would you work in our hearts that we would trust you more? Would you work in our church that we would be, that we would showcase the mercy you have shown to us? We ask these things in your name. Amen.